Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity, feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speaks podcast. I'm Jason James, executive producer of the show. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information from some of the nation's top doctors. I'm joined now by our host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a medical reporter and a past president of the National Medical Association. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to another edition of Black Doctor Speak. We're excited this evening again to talk to you and bring to you issues that are imperative and that are important to our community and to our ethnic group. And so tonight, of course, you know, we have a lot of great uh, information for you, but we also want to make sure that you are putting the comments in the comments. Let us know where you're you're watching from. We would like to see where you're watching us from all over the nation, all over the world. So drop that in the comment section. We also, if you hear some information that you know that you like or that you know that somebody could use, please make sure that you are putting it and that you are tagging your friends and that you're sharing it on your page. So we'd like for you to share this information with your friends and family. We have a really, really exciting show for you tonight. With Tonight is all about Black women and Black women's health. And so we are excited to really get, dive into this topic. We've got some wonderful, wonderful speakers, that are, uh, panelists that are going to come on from the Black Women's Health Imperative. So um, I'm going to shut up and get to the man of the hour the man that you are all here to see, and that is Dr. Michael Lenore. How are you doing, Dr. Lenore? You know, you know, I'm doing really good tonight because I'm so happy to have uh, as partners the Black Women's Health Imperative. Uh, they've done a, a, lot of, a, a great deal of work in a number of very relevant areas that we at the African American Wellness Project um, uh, are emphasizing and focusing on. But certainly maternal health is important. COVID is important. Uh, a lot of things are important, and we share, I think, some of the same goals and objectives. The African American Wellness Project, as you know, is 20 years old, and we have been doing some of the same work. So, But first, before we get started on the important discussions that we have to have with our guests, I'd like to know a little bit more, and I think our audience would like to know a little bit more about the Black Women's Health Imperative. Uh, and Ellis, can you introduce uh, our guest who's going to discuss that? Uh, with us for a few minutes, and then we'll move into uh, more meaningful, substantive discussions. Yeah, our first guest is Dr. Kanika Harris, and I'm going to bring her on on screen here. And and this, (laughs) she has a PhD and an MPH, so she's got a whole lot of alphabet soup after her name. But but ultimately, uh, Dr. Harris currently works as a director of maternal health for the Black Women's Health Imperative. She is a behavioral health uh, scientist with a special focus on health equity, maternal health, and women's health. She also serves as a maternal health equity advisor for the state of Maryland and the public health expert for the Lactation uh, Commission in Washington, D.C. Dr. Harris is also co-directing and producing a documentary called Listen to Me, which uh, people need to listen more than they speak nowadays. So I'm with you on that one. Listen to Me, which explores four women at the front lines of the Black maternal health movement walking the tightrope of racism and birth in America. And, I, and I'm going to say this on a personal note. Um, as as a as a black man and as a father of two, 
I, I think is very important. I think that is America's dirty little secret in terms of the amount of the maternal health and those statistics about Black women and maternal health are horrifying. So I want to applaud you ahead of time, give your flowers ahead of time for taking on this project. So welcome to the program tonight, Dr. Harris. Yeah, how many Dr. Harris's are? How many Dr. Harris's are there? I mean, with all of the things that you have uh, in your resume and all the things that you do on a daily basis, uh, I, I think there must be at least more than one. Dr. Yes, Harris. I think so. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Black Women's uh, Health Imperative, uh, what it is, why it was formed, who, who composes it, and what are some of your main uh, goals and objectives? Absolutely. So the Black Women's Health Imperative, we have over 38 years now of um, really fighting for the health equity of Black women. Um, and it was started on Spelman's campus with the amazing um, Billy Avery, who um, really was fighting for reproductive justice, getting us to understand reproductive justice. Um, and, you know, we just focus on the total health and wellness of Black women, financial, physical, emotional, um, all, all of those things that we know, mental, all the things that we know that we need to be healthy. Um, and, you know, we have an array of programs in reproductive justice. We focus a lot on the policy um, piece. Um, we have programs in terms of diabetes and chronic disease and wellness. Um, and so we really focus nationally on everything Black women, supporting all the health needs of Black women. And we have a, a new initiative around anti-racism as well. So uh, that's a lot of very, very important uh, objectives, uh, and you seem to do it very well. Um, and so we thank you for, for just the opportunity uh, to partner with you and to have you as our guest today. Uh, usually we start our program to... Uh, Mr. Dean and I talking about the COVID uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, you know, we have limited knowledge, and we're we're glad now to have uh, an associate with us tonight, Dr. Uh, Latonia Washington. She is the president of the Bluff City Medical Society, and I believe Dr. Washington uh, is she is she on the phone? Is she on the? I believe Dr. Washington, weren't you the NMA's chapter of the year? When we in Oakland weren't the chapter of the year? Absolutely, we were NMA chapter of the year. But Bluff City is a very a famous and a very important member of the National Medical Association, always has been, uh, and we're proud to have its president to talk about the COVID virus. You know, uh, we've talked about it a, a number of different times, but I still think there's a couple of questions that we have left unanswered and on the table. First of all, why do you think this virus disproportionately impacted African-Americans? You know, that is really a multifaceted question when we talk about why COVID really disproportionately affects um, um, Black and Brown people. When we talk about that, we have to think about just um, how we live. You know, many people who live in multi-generational households where they have, you know, grandparents, parents, kids, and grandkids all in the same home. So that is one way that the virus can spread if you're living in close quarters and don't have the ability to social distance. We also have to think about uh, the number of black and brown folks who are in uh, really forward-facing essential workforce. You know, we heard at the beginning of this pandemic that as physicians, we were the essential workers. And I argue against that. I mean, yeah, we are essential, 
but really the people who work at our grocery stores, the people who uh, work in the um, at the post office delivering our packages, uh, the truckers who are bringing in food and from manufacturers, they are really the ones who are the essential workers. And we realized that very early on during this pandemic, we all experienced those food shortages and things like that. And so um, in those instances, you know, you may have to work in close quarters in factories where you don't have the ability to social distance. And we know that in, in enclosed spaces, those viruses can spread. And when you have a lot of contact with others, the virus can spread. So that's really the main reason why COVID is disproportionately affecting um, black and brown people. Yeah, we call them the we call them the early bus responders. Uh, they didn't even know the virus was out there. Uh, and they were on the front lines. Whenever they talk about first responders, they usually mention uh, the doctors and the nurses, and they do deserve a lot of credit. But they forget about the early bus responders, the ones that really took the heat, and for a number of reasons why we uh, got into the problems that we had. Uh, a couple of other questions that always keep coming up is that most many people are, are hesitant uh, to get a vaccine because they feel that they can handle uh, a coronavirus infection. Now, you and I both know that the coronavirus infection uh, really is not, maybe not that bad. But what about some of the residuals? You know, um, I I have said really since the beginning of this pandemic, I was more afraid of COVID-19 than I was of the vaccine. And so that was really a large part of the reason why I got vaccinated and I encouraged my entire family to get vaccinated against this disease. One of the things that we don't really have a good understanding about with COVID is why some people have severe symptoms and some people don't have severe symptoms. You know, it, I've seen in my hospital 80-year-old grandmothers who had a lot of medical problems who were completely asymptomatic when they had COVID-19. And as a converse, I've seen a healthy 28-year-old who was very sick and had to be in the ICU and on the ventilator for, for um, because of COVID-19. Uh, and then I've also seen the reverse. So it's really hard for us to know who will have severe disease and who won't. Of course, you know, we have studies that show that people that have pre-existing conditions or chronic conditions like obesity, lung disease, diabetes, high blood pressure are more likely to have severe effects from COVID-19. Uh, but again, it really is kind of up in the air. I've really seen it across the board. And so I think it's really important that we uh, protect ourselves. We do talk about residual. I'm going to be on a webinar tomorrow night through the Bluff City Medical Society where uh, we will be talking to a COVID survivor. And this is a gentleman who was in his mid-50s, developed COVID-19 and was in the hospital in the ICU for two months on the ventilator for about a month and a half. He got over COVID, got out of the hospital after that time, and then developed a severe infection because his immune system was so suppressed from COVID that the bacteria was able to attack his heart valve and cause him to have heart disease. He had to have open heart surgery. So, you know, that's just one of the things that we talk about with the residual effects of COVID. COVID also affects the kidneys very severely. We have a lot of patients who are post-COVID who have to be on dialysis. Uh, really for long term. It really caused their kidneys to shut down. They have some long-standing heart disease and some chronic lung disease. So all of those things, you know, those are side effects that I don't want. If I can prevent it, 
then I don't want that. And I don't want that for uh, anyone that I know or any patients that I care for. Yeah, so people need to, people need to appreciate them. Go ahead, go ahead, Alice. No, you make an interesting point. And I think I think that that we, we talked about this last night. Uh, we, did a, we did a program on COVID last night for, for California. And I've been reading some of the latest research and they're talking about COVID being more of a vascular disease than a respiratory disease, as we initially thought. And, and I'm saying we in terms of people that work, work loosely and around medical health and wellness. And so when you're talking about vascular diseases, um, that has that's more pervasive because that attacks the heart. It can attack multiple areas in the body because it's getting through uh, the blood vessels and the blood system. And so um, we haven't talked, and I don't believe, and I'm saying we in, in a general sense haven't talked enough about the long-term effect of COVID, whereas we've kind of been focusing so much on the vaccines and people have been focusing on long-term effects of the vaccine, but they're not talking about the long-term effects of even if you survive from COVID, now you have a pre-existing condition in for the rest of your life that could be impacting your health uh, for the next 20 or 30 years. So yes, you might survive it, but you're going to have health conditions. You could condi- uh, have health conditions that could be severe, and, and and I think we need to talk more about that and less about you know how the vaccine could you know impact your life. Absolutely, and so really kind of to piggyback off of that, one of the things that I will say, and I think that for the most part this is somewhat antidotal, but uh, what we've seen is that some patients who have what we call long haul COVID, meaning that mm-hmm. they have the long term effects from COVID. So that's what that word means for all the viewers. Um, sometimes they have said that after they received their vaccines, that they actually improved. So, right. again, I think there are additional studies that are going on uh, about that. But also when we talk about uh, COVID being a vascular disease, understand that blood vessels go throughout our body they uh, supply all of our uh, organs, everything. And so if COVID can affect that, uh, and when we talk about the long-term disease, understand that, yeah, you may survive COVID, but you may not be able to work. You may not be able to provide for your family. Uh, If you're a very young person and you haven't chosen to purchase life insurance or disability insurance yet, all of these uh, conditions that you develop, develop from COVID will be pre-existing. So that will exclude you from being able to do that. Right. Uh, so those are all things that you have to consider as well when we talk about COVID and COVID prevention. Our special guest today is Dr. Latonia Washington. She's the president of the Bluff City Medical Society, an organization of the National Medical Association. We're talking about COVID and we're going back over some of the important points that you need to understand. We still have a number uh, a lot of uh, people, and certainly a lot of African-Americans, were not opting for the vaccine. And I think too often, Dr. Washington, they don't connect what they're doing with the overall success of the vaccination program. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about the variants. Absolutely. So uh, we know that viruses, the longer that they are out in the community, they mutate. And so when those viruses mutate, that's when we have variants. That's why they're calling them variants. Um, but kind of a term that we will understand is it's a, a COVID-19 mutant. So really what, what the push was initially and really still is the push, but the push is to get us to herd immunity. So that's that 60 to 70 percent of the U.S. population vaccinated against COVID before the virus mutates to the point that the vaccine doesn't work anymore. 
Right. Um, and so really, that's what we're saying. And that's why we're really pushing for vaccination. And then when we talk about herd immunity, you know, right now, we're really at about, I believe the number was about 46% of the U.S. population that mm. was vaccinated against COVID-19. We need to be at 70 to 80%. So really at the rate we're going, we're not going to get there, particularly when we hear that now states are opening up, they're uh, easing the mask mandates. I know here in Tennessee, the mask mandate was lifted last week. Uh, We have people who are attempting to walk around in the hospital without masks. You know, of course, we are shutting that down. But uh, it's important to understand that we have COVID all around us. And so if we aren't able to protect ourselves from getting COVID-19, and by being vaccinated before the virus mutates and such that the vaccine won't be effective, then uh, we're going to be dealing with this pandemic for probably at least a couple more years. And so I know we've given up so much already for the past 18 months. You know, can you really see us being still in this state uh, next year this time or the year after this time? And that's really what we're looking at. And so, um, you know, that's why we're encouraging vaccine use. Well, you know, I'm looking at what happens in India, and I can watch variants develop just looking at the television. We're in a worldwide struggle against this vaccine. There's no reason why we can't do the best we can, can do at home. Talk a little bit of now, you know, this week or last week, they announced that the vaccine is now available for children down to 12. I fully expect that in the next six to eight months, it will be children down to two. A lot of parents have questions. If children don't have such severe disease, why is it important that they be vaccinated? So, yeah, that's a really great question. And um, so when we talk about children and COVID-19, it is true that most children don't have severe COVID disease. However, there is um, kind of a post-infectious syndrome that children can get that's called MISC, which is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children. Those kids can be very sick. They have uh, severe long-term effects. And a lot of people who develop that will end up dying. Of course, we don't want any kids to die. uh, So that's why we want to prevent that. Also, we understand that although kids do not have severe COVID disease, they can spread it readily. So think about kids going to school. I say that children really have been the most protected during this entire pandemic because what happened in March 2020, the school shut down and they really have been shut down since then. So we haven't had a large groupings of children together. Well, we know that going into this upcoming school year that the schools are likely going to be open. And so you have that as a place where children not having severe disease, they could be spreading COVID. Uh, to their teachers, to their parents, to everyone else in the community. But also when COVID is in a high percentage in a concentrated area, that also causes more mutations, which we don't want. And so that is really the impetus to get kids vaccinated against COVID. So I'm really looking forward to uh, the vaccine age being lowered down to two. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues who have kids that are in uh, the 12 to 16 age range, they have been going to get their kids vaccinated. And I really do think it's a positive thing. And I think it's very important. Also, a number of colleges and universities have instituted uh, vaccination requirements for their students to return to campus. And I think that's a positive thing as well, because when we have 
COVID concentrated on a college campus, you know, kids in college don't necessarily have the ability to do the social distance, to quarantine. They don't have uh, that necessarily that medical oversight to make sure that they are receiving the care that they need. And some young people can really have severe disease. You know, I'd like to milk. You're one of the best guests we've had to talk about this issue. I have some questions, but so does our audience. Uh, they're asking, well, if the children's experience same side effects from the vaccine as adults. Right. So traditionally, children have fewer side effects from vaccines than adults, but the vaccine, uh, the side effects from the COVID vaccine were really relatively mild. You know, you may have a low-grade fever, you may feel a little bit achy or feel a little bit sluggish. I know that was my experience uh, with the COVID vaccine, and it lasted one to two days. I took some Tylenol or some ibuprofen, and those symptoms went away. It was very short-lived. Now, my mother, on the other hand, uh, who is in her late 60s, received the vaccine, and she had no symptoms, especially after her second dose. I thought she was going to be feeling under the weather, and she was completely fine. So it really varies uh, per person, but it is my thought that children will likely have less severe side effects from the vaccine. And I don't believe that the side effects should really hinder you from receiving the COVID vaccine at all, or the fear of side effects should hinder you from receiving the vaccine. You know, when I was growing up, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Washington, there was a uh, there was a character in on TV called the Lone Ranger, and the Lone Ranger wore a mask all the time. Now, I have the same philosophy about my mask as the Lone Ranger. I don't care what the CDC says. I don't care what they say for the state of California. I'm keeping that mask on for quite some time. Talk about the, the talk a, a bit about the um, the directions from the CDC. Uh, what do they mean? What do they mean to you? Yeah. Well, first of all, I will say that I agree with you with the mask wearing. I haven't had an upper respiratory infection in uh, over a year. Uh, we had essentially no flu cases in our hospital this year. So that is telling me all I need to know about wearing a mask. It, it certainly does prevent um, disease. So we heard this week about the CDC uh, saying that vaccinated individuals can be indoors without masks. And, you know, I think that if individuals are vaccinated, then that is okay. But there is no way for us to know if everyone is, in fact, vaccinated when you go to these public areas. We know that there's been so much controversy around this COVID-19 virus. There are a lot of people who still don't believe that COVID is real. There are a lot of people who won't get vaccinated, but they may still go maskless. Um, and so that is a, a major concern because... Again, we haven't reached that herd immunity point, and, and COVID is still spreading throughout our community. Um, I was on a call today with, um, with our hospital administrators that uh, told us that our COVID cases are up about 20%, and our COVID hospitalizations are up, and our number of ventilators used are up as well. And so we're able to see that. And so my concern is, is that, you know, we'll really get to a point where our medical system will be overwhelmed again uh, from COVID-19. And we really shouldn't be in that place, you know, 18 months to two years out of this uh, infection. Like we know how to manage this with prevention. So I'll be continuing to wear my mask uh, <laughs> because I don't trust other people. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about me. When you see me, I'll be, I'll be masked up. I may pull my mask down so you know who I am, but 
That was maybe about the only time I changed. Finally, really quickly, in the time that we have left for this segment, uh, tell us um, a little bit about uh, pregnancy. Uh, what happens when, uh, with pregnancy and the corona and the coronavirus? Okay, well, I will uh, certainly state by uh, start by stating my disclaimer. I am not an OBGYN. Um, however, what I do know about COVID-19 and pregnancy, and I've talked to a lot of my colleagues, and they often get internal medicine consultations for pregnant patients who have COVID-19 and have severe disease. You know, pregnant women tend to be more severely affected by COVID. Um, if you think about, you know, pregnancy as the baby is growing inside, you require more oxygen. And so with the virus affecting the lungs, um, you may feel short of breath more easily. Some pregnant women feel short of breath at baseline. And so then you have COVID on top of that. And then when we talk about the vasculitis, you know, certainly there is a risk for uh, long-term effects from COVID-19. Some of my OB colleagues have uh, shared with me that they've had patients that had severe COVID and had to be on the ventilator and they had to do emergency C-sections in the ICU to get the baby out because the, um, the infant was under distress. And so certainly we don't want that to be the case for any uh, expectant mother. You know, the vaccine is approved for pregnancy as well, uh, really in all trimesters, the American uh, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, does recommend and support COVID vaccination uh, for pregnant women. And uh, it is also thought that once they receive the vaccine, that they are able to pass on some of those antibodies, some of those protective, protective antibodies once they give birth to the baby. So it's really kind of a win-win in that the mom is protected from severe disease, but then also the baby is protected as well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us about this. We, we have a number of questions that I may have to get offline, but I think we need to move to some of them as important uh, a part of our discussion, and that's the uh, issue on maternal health. I think we uh, at the African American Wellness Project have been so very concerned about the increased mortality rates for African-American women. The statistic that sounds that Mr. Dean and I have talked about maybe 15 or 20 times is that a black woman with a PhD has an increased, a, a greater chance of, of dying in pregnancy than a Caucasian woman with a high school degree. Uh, and that's kind of where we start. So Mr. Dean, could you introduce our next guest who's gonna to talk to us about this particular problem? So once again, I'd like to welcome back uh, Dr. Kanika Harris. Uh, she is a PhD and she is part of the Black Women's Health Imperative. And she, um, when we introduced her earlier, we really were talking about um, her role in terms of bringing more awareness to the, the Black maternal health uh, situation that is really out of sorts with, with what's happening in terms of general population. And we're talking about awareness and action. And so I think that action piece is, is the most important piece of it. Yes, we got to get more people aware of what's happening in terms of the mortality rate in terms of black maternal health. And then also we have to say, okay, now that we know about it, what are we going to do about it? And so Dr. Harris is on the forefront in terms of making sure that we are both aware and we are acting upon so we can lower those numbers in terms of the mortality rate of black maternal health. So thank you again and welcome again, uh, Dr. You know, Dr. Harris, first of all, $64,000 question. Why? 
why are black women dying at so much higher rates than other women? Yes. So um, that first statistic you just mentioned, that's me. You know, when I was getting my Ph.D., um, I was carrying twins and I um, suffered from preeclampsia and the mistreatment that I experienced in the hospital um, caused me to almost lose my life. I spent three days in ICU and I lost my twins. So um, I am that statistic. Um, and that did happen to me 10 years ago. And so I look at myself and ask, why? Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to Black women? And it's a two-pronged um, answer. One, we know that um, just living in America, Black women living in America, um, you know, we have a history since we've gotten this country of our boundaries and just our lives being encroached on by racism and um, really affected by racism. Um, and, you know, racism meaning a system that um, really um, supports white lives over black lives in a lot of different ways, politically, educationally, healthcare wise. And so when you look at what's happening to us, it's the stress over our life course um, from, and when I say life course, I mean from the time we are born that um, really is a cumulative effect on our bodies that make us more high risk um, when we become pregnant. And, and you know, that, that um, stress and that racism can look from, so for me being a PhD, it can look from being in all white environments, trying to prove myself, knowing that as a black woman, people don't look at me as a credible source of information for anything, let alone if I'm telling you I'm in pain. Um, so all of those things across our life course, how we fight, how we are fighting for our family, um, how these barriers are against us, um, cause stress. And we know that over time, studies have shown that that stress, um, which is called the allostatic globe, um, how we balance that stress, how we balance those stress hormones in our bodies can affect our reproductive abilities. Um, and can cause poor pregnancy and birth outcomes. And the other part of it is um, how we're treated in the healthcare system. You know, in my situation, I was bleeding out when I entered the emergency room and they asked me for my insurance card first. Um, you should have done that later. You missed vital time to save me and my babies um, because you were asking me for my insurance card, you know. Um, Dr. Washington um, was talking about COVID and we're talking about these twin pandemics of racism and COVID right now. And we have the perfect example of that twin pandemic with Dr. Susan Moore, who um, was a physician who died in the hospital um, when her pain and her COVID symptoms weren't treated accurately. And if a physician can't advocate for them own their own selves, then how are we supposed to advocate for ourselves? So um, I'll yeah. stop there. No, I, I think, first of all, I, I do want to say, Dr. Harris, uh, we we empathize with, with what you had to go through. And so I, I don't want to just treat that lightly because that is a, a significant uh, point in your life. And I, I appreciate the fact that you took that pain and you're, and you're trying to help other women from uh, experiencing that that same distress. So I just want to make sure that we, we give that the, the proper justice that it deserves. Thank you. Yeah, and you know that we, uh, in the African-American Wellness Project, 
were founded on just this issue. When we believe that health care that is poor in quality for black people starts from the bottom up, not from the top down. Mm-hmm. Is that the top down situation has not helped us as black people. And so our primary objective, and I'm not going to spend much time with that, is to, at the African American Wellness Project, is to give black people the tools to go into the system, to have an advocate and navigate, to demand the kind of health care that is responsible. Uh, that, of course, some of the things that we're seeing. But is this a genetic problem? Or is this something that has to do with unconscious bias or something about the system? A lot of people say, well, maybe this is genetic. Maybe black people are not built uh, to have children at the same rate. I've heard that discussion. Uh, what do you think? Um, we're, we're both chuckling because I guess that's, that's so far from what yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've been listening in the yeah. doctor's lounge for a long time. I've heard a lot worse things than that. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? What part do you think the system plays? And is this a genetic problem? So first of all, we have the science to prove that it's not a genetic problem. Um, Dr. Neonatologist Richard David and James Collins in 2007 um, came out with a study to show if you want to prove that it's a genetic problem, let's look at African-born right mothers because we are all of African descent. So let's look at African-born mothers. So um, mothers that were born in Africa that birthed in the U.S., had the same birth rates as white women, but their mm-hmm. children started to have the same birth rates as black U.S. born women, right? Mm-hmm. So within one generation that um, their children that were born in America start to have the same birth outcomes as black Americans, but their mothers who were born on the continent of Africa had the same birth outcomes as white women. Um, so, we know that if it was genetic, then Africans would be having the same birth outcomes in the, in the U.S. as U.S.-born Black women. And so that really shows us that there's something about living in America and the stress of living in America that has caused um, these high-risk issues for Black women. And we've done studies um, controlling, and by what I mean controlling, um, making sure that we are counting for all different things, such as pre-existing conditions, um, you know, nutrition, um, uh, just um, um, doctor's appointments, all kind, kinds of variables that we are known to say predict poor birth outcomes for Black women or um, low birth weight situations. And after controlling for a numerous amount of factors, um, we see that um, Black women have reproductive outcomes. Their stress levels are equivalent to white women. Um, so a Black woman in their 20s can have the stress levels of white women in their 30s, right? So there's something about that stress that we're seeing um, that affects our birth outcomes. And the stress of just going to doctor's appointments and... Um, and we know that when we go to a doctor's appointment, we have to perform, right? Um, when you ask us questions like, how many babies have we had? How many abortions have we had? Um, you know, we know that depending on what answer we give you, you're already coming up with stereotypes about what kind of person we are and if we deserve um, proper care. 
Yeah, I, I think you know ultimately, um, and so I'm going to ask the I'm going to ask the simple question: um, What can we do? Right? Is it is it do we? And I and I hear Dr. Lenore saying about okay, we've got to work from the bottom up. So if the bottom up is does it, does that mean that we need to explore alternative methods of of childbirthing? Right? Do we need to have black women? You kind of remove themselves from the medical, you know, system altogether, and work with uh, midwives and 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 doulas and, and everything else, and have more children at home, where you have a better chance of having somebody that's going to be considerate of you and, and your birth needs. Or do we continue to fight the system and get the system to try to change and be more uh, empathetic to Black women and their causes? Yeah. Before you answer that question. Let me combine that with a question that we want to ask about doulas. And tell us exactly what those are as it kind of integrates into your answer for Mr. Dean. Absolutely. So we've seen for Black women definitely an uptick in home births and um, birth centers during the pandemic. Um, Just being afraid of not having advocacy and maybe only having one person in the room at the beginning of the pandemic. It was nobody you could have. Um, advocate, advocating for you in the room in terms of birth. Um, and also, yeah, it's a both end. Because say, for example, someone like me um, being pregnant with twins and just to talk about that whole thing about Black people and pregnancy, I've been pregnant with twins twice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my second pregnancy was successful. Um and so I just say that to say that being having multiple births, that takes you out of a birth center in a home birth situation, right? Okay. Black women are birthing later. Um, and sometimes the risk that you may come into when you're pregnant, you may just be more high risk in terms of you may have some pre-existing conditions that you didn't know about walking in, right? And that axes you out of the birth space and the um, birth center space and the home birth space um, just for liability issues. So that means that, and a lot of us will fall into that category. So what that means is that it's a, it's a both and. Yes, absolutely, we need to put more resources in the birth centers and home births for women to have those choices, um, the most important thing about having a successful birth is feeling safe, you know? Right. And so if you're going to feel safe and supported and get the care that you need at home or in a birth center, by all means, you can do that. But for those of us who are who don't check those boxes to have that birth, we need to know that the hospital is also going to be a safe space for us and um, we can have successful births. Um, doulas are just... You know, I became a doula in 2006 um, when people were like, a doula, what's that? Um, Now I feel like everyone has at least heard the word. A doula is a support person that provides non-clinical support, informational support, physical support. Um, In this case, we're talking about for women during birth. Um, there are all kinds of doulas. There are death doulas. There are um, postpartum doulas for um, after you get home with your baby and you need care for your baby at home, which is equally as important, especially when we're turning talking about um, postpartum depression and maternal mental health for Black women. Um, and I would just say this month is Maternal Mental Health Month. And so Black Women's Health Imperatives is 
is focused on maternal mental health for Black women. Because when we're experiencing these traumas in birth, we are also more likely to experience postpartum depression. And so doulas um, can advocate for us to have the birth that they want, we want, and we know that we need. And then for postpartum doulas, it's important because when we get home, we may need that support or we may have um, things that are happening to us that need follow-up medical attention. So um, for Black women, we're looking at uh, uh, over 30% of deaths happening postpartum. Remember, maternal mortality is a death that can happen within that first year of delivering. It's not just um, giving birth. And so we need that wraparound care for at least the first year. Yeah. So recently we had a, um, a an OBGYN come on and they talked about, we were, we were t- talking about this subject and they talked about having um, groups of black women coming together and almost like a, uh, um, like I think is. Yeah, it was, it was like a support group mm-hmm. uh, that were, they were in the same, they were uh, on, in the same tri- trimester of their birth. So they were going to, and they met whether it was online, virtually, and so, and they found that the outcomes were better because they had somebody that they could bounce if they're if they're you know pregnant alone, they've got a, a group that they can lean into, and they they could reduce some of the stress levels, and that found found to have better birthing outcomes. So, do you think we, that that model should be kind of spread out across the country? Is that feasible? Is that something that could be done? And in, in, in especially in our major cities across the, the country, where we've got groups of Black women in these kind of you know group settings where they can express themselves, talk about how they're feeling, kind of talk about their birthing experience, and that helps reduce their stress because they've got an outlet for their emotions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Black, black women, um, you know, traditionally just human beings, we, uh, we don't birth alone. We don't birth in silos. We don't birth in isolation. Um, and somehow we've, we've built up this idea of the American dream that you have this diet with this husband and you go to a hospital and you have your baby and you guys figure it out. And that's not what it is. You know, tribes of women come together to feed you to make sure you get sleep. You know, the most important thing in having a new baby, being able to have your body produce food for this baby, sleep and nutrients. And um, you need time off for that. You need um, someone to take that baby while you go to sleep. You need other women that understand what's happening to you. Um, And I I definitely, we do have peer support groups um, for pregnancy and for lactation. And that's been just really, really successful. And um, I will also point to Shalon's map. Um, Shalon Irving was a colleague of mine that passed away of postpartum complications. And her mom, Wanda Irving, has continued her legacy with her friends. And they've started the organization Shalon's Map. Shalon's Map has an app out. So look at look up the Shalon's Map app because it provides a space to build community for exactly yeah. what you're talking about, Ellis, in terms of um, peer support. So if you can't get together, COVID is still an issue, you can create these groups of support on that app. Amen. Let's, uh, uh, before, you, before you go, uh, Doc, I want to bring in uh, uh, Kanita Sheely. She is the policy counsel at the Black Women's Health Imperative. Uh, so that means she's an attorney. <laughs> okay. And that means we, we, we got to be careful with what we say because, you know, 
But attorneys get around, you got to make sure you say the right thing. But she's a skillful attorney with extensive healthcare, corporate, and advocacy experience. Through advocacy, policy, and strategy development, she, she assists and serves to improve the health and well-being of the nation, nation's Black women and girls. Uh, prior to joining the Black Women's Health Imperative, uh, she began her career in the pharmaceutical industry and worked for corporations including uh, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, and Novartis. There, she continued to pursue her, her passion for medicine and the services and was an ally to patients and physicians in treating a variety of diseases. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, you have uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about the um, Black Women's Health Imperative is that you recognize the need for uh, effective uh, and organized action. Uh, and obviously that has turned you, upon, turned you into both a policy and a legislative um, institute. So can you tell us something about some of the laws uh, that have been uh, passed uh, in response to this maternal mortality issue and some of the things you're doing uh, to enhance uh, the implementation of those uh, laws? Absolutely. Um, and as you know, one of the one of the major pieces of legislation that we're supporting is the Black Maternal Health Monibus Act of 2021. And as you know, you alluded to, there's an alarming maternal health crisis in this country, and it's claiming the lives at staggering pace. Unsurprisingly, as we've spoken about, um, the situation is most severe for Black mothers, who are three to four times more likely to die from complications of pregnancy or childbirth than white women. And this racial disparity persists regardless of age, socioeconomic status, education, or other factors, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Lenore. Um, so to address the maternal mortality and racial disparities experienced by Black mothers, Representative Lauren Underwood and Representative Alma Adams and members of the Black Maternal Health Caucus introduced the Black Maternal Health Monibus Act of 2021. And this legislation is really composed of 12 individual bills um, that will advocate for a 12-month postpartum Medicaid coverage, promote a diverse perinatal workforce, invest in rural maternal health, implicit bias trainings, and other critical policies so that every facet of the Black maternal health crisis is addressed. This year, the monibus is much more expansive and it includes three new titles, including the Maternal Health Pandemic Response Act, the Maternal Vaccination Act, and the Protecting Moms and Babies from Climate Change Act. And these bills will advance policies to address the risks to pregnant people during the COVID-19 pandemic, increase maternal immunization rates, and promote the health of moms and babies through and post the COVID-19 pandemic and address impacts of climate change on maternal and infant health, um, health outcomes respectively. So really this is a critical piece of legislation which reflects the times and aims to legislate solutions for the bevy of issues facing black working people. And BWHI as a part of the maternal, Black Maternal Health Caucus Advisory Group We'll continue to work closely um, with this legislation as we try to fulfill our mission to bring health equity to the nation's Black women and girls. So um, that's something that we're really, really, um, really, really strive to um, advocate for as a really piece of important legislation. And in terms of what we're doing at the Black Women's Health Imperative, well, we're doing a number of things. Of course, um, we support all this legislation in the Monibus Act. Um, it's hard to choose. It's like asking a parent who your favorite child is. Um, but however, we're particularly most interested um, in advocating for maternal health and, and climate and the impact of that. So 
um, climate change, as a result of the climate change and temperatures across the U.S. are increasing, and heat waves are predicted to increase in intensity and frequency, um, alongside impacts on pregnancy, heat kills uh, more people than all weather-related deaths combined. So for Black women, um, pregnancy outcomes are exacerbated by climate change. Um, undoubtedly, heat exposure plays a detrimental role in one's ability to have a healthy birthing experience. So um, if I may, I could share a few points about, you know, climate change, its impact on maternal health. Um, one, for instance, is that uh, found that one study turned a preterm birth and exposure to heat found Black and Asian mothers had larger impacts from heat exposure than white mothers. And Black women had more hospitalizations due to heat exposure um, during the pregnancy than other women. Um, also, marginalized communities are more likely to reside in urban neighborhoods, referred to as heat islands, and they're significantly warmer um, than the rural or suburban communities. And that's because the heat is trapped in the concrete and the buildings and there are fewer trees to provide shade. So um, BWHI is really, really invested in advocating and promoting the Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change Act as part of the Monolith legislation, which really centers the equity and the lived experiences of Black women. Um, also, I'm I want you to finish. Uh, I, I just got a question really about, um, I, I'm fully in, in behind the legislation, but I'm looking at the makeup of our Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Being predominantly white and male and having, you know, very little, you know, what, what do you think, you know, what, what's your feeling in terms of getting that legislation passed when we have a, a, a Congress that really can't seem to agree on anything? And when we're talking about legislation that is uh, solely focused on improving the health outcome of Black women, do you think there's enough uh, people in Congress that actually care? I'm just going to be as blunt as possible. Well, I'm, I'm hoping so. Uh, we have, you know, the good thing is that we have um, a Democratic administration. We have uh, the House and the Senate. And we have a president and administration that centers equity, and it's a main focus of, of this administration. So I'm hopeful in terms of legislation. I don't think, you know, they're passing it as one whole bill, um, one whole package, but individually. And we have gotten some traction in some pieces of the legislation um, are moving forward. So um, I'm hopeful that all of these issues and all this legislation will be passed um, in a timely manner. And what we can do um, as you know, individuals is certainly um, help the process. That means to contact your legislators, contact your representative, contact your senators, um, get educated, build um, the more people that you have um, Supporting this legislation and getting that word out, the more likely you know that's going to pass and trying to get bipartisan support. So um, I'm always hopeful um, that these that these issues will be addressed. You know, one of the things that all of us had to do during this pandemic was to kind of make a mojo turn on all of the stuff that we need we're doing. Discuss a little bit about how you changed your approach during the pandemic, uh, what you did um, differently, and what are some of the resources you provided. Uh, to the public. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, everybody had to turn on a dime in the pandemic. There's no more in-person meetings. So we had to go to uh, Zoom, a lot of Zoom, a lot of webinars, a lot of virtual conversations that really uh, to reach our audiences and to um, and partner with other organizations 
um, to have these conversations and have people that they respected, leaders, uh, congressmen, uh, celebrities, whoever can get the word out and really um, try to communicate with the public um, because there's such a dire need right now, um, especially when we, you know, uh, there was a time when, you know, access and communication was limited. We're all trying to get our feet under the new situation. So that's the way we had to, you know, change. And we've put out fact sheets about, you know, the legislation, uh, the CARES Act. Uh, most recently, we um, had, uh, we've uh, put out the Black Women Vote. Uh, and in anticipation of the president's election, we developed our Black Women Vote National Health Policy Agenda for 2021. And it's really the cornerstone of our health policies. Uh, it focuses on the four pillars on access to quality and affordable health care, equitable responses to public health emergencies, sufficient diversity in clinical research, and increased funding to support historically Black colleges and universities. And also, we've included a fifth pillar, um, social justice, um, which addresses police violence, sexual assault, and incarceration. And under each pillar, the agenda includes a thorough yet non-exhaustive list of the most pressing issues of facing Black women today and policy recommendations to move towards real solutions. Um, it serves to mobilize Black women who um, we've historically stood at the forefront of the social movements um, and were instrumental in this you know, recent election of President Biden to advocate for ourselves and our communities. Um, so it's a blueprint for change and deliver a call for action for policymakers, practitioners, academics, and policy leaders. Also, we have the uh, COVID-19 Surviving and Thriving COVID-19 Pandemic Survival Guide for Black women and their families. So it talks about, again, the disproportionate impact as a resource, patient stories, all from the um, experience of Black women. So those are a couple of resources that we have. And of course, I always you know, would say, come please visit our website, um, bwhi.org, to find out more information and other initiatives that we're doing as well. I'd like to bring back on the hair. We're getting close to the end of our time. And I want to make sure that we, we're providing all this great information. That That's the most important thing. But we also like to give some people some instruction. And that part of that instruction is what can people do? Like, what, what what's the number one goal? Is it is it to to vote in their state uh, legislation, or is it, it talking about focus on our national election in terms of making sure that we're putting the power of our voting, the power of, of, of what we can do, of our voice behind the right people that can get these types of legislations passed so Black women can lower that mortality rate when we're talking about birth. Um, so, yes. First of all, I always want to start with telling Black women, uh, you can sleep if you need to, because we're in a pandemic and we fight all of our lives, right? So like, you can take a break, you can take a nap, you know, you can first take the time to restore your health and wellness and rest and take care of yourself. Um, so I just always like to start with that because I have to remind myself, as you know, Dr. Lenora was saying in terms of, um, there must be five of you. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes that's what it feels like. So I just want to start with that. Um, and secondly, yes, um, try and get familiar with, you know, your congressperson with um, policies and the way they work. Um, it can be as simple as 
you know, Googling the issue you want and what congressperson is responsible for that and, you know, how to how to advocate and call, you know, they have now they have templates and letters and toolkits that you can simply just, you know, sign on to and send off to your congressperson. And then, um, you know, just really think about how you can what what skills that you have to support your community and a lot of a lot of the things that we need to do we're already doing in some shape or form we're already kind of you know mobile we've always had creative ways of supporting each other and taking care of each other so we're i just want to remind us that we are inherently resilient and um you know we've been the forefront of making change and um supporting our families and I don't know, Kanita, if you um, want to add on in any way. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with all of what you're saying. And um, Mr. Ellis, yes, um, change starts, policy drives change. So whether we're talking about COVID or maternal health, it is important to get involved at every level, at every level community, state, um, and nationally, um, make the difference, get involved, contact, and hold your legislators accountable for their actions so we can affect change. So, And I would say from the hospital perspective, I just want to chime in because a lot of times when we give birth at hospitals or have visits at hospitals, um, we don't fill out that little survey about how our experience and treatment was. It's so important to do that. You know, we kind of, we're trying to get out the hospital, we're trying to move on. And then that little survey comes to your phone or you get a phone call from the hospital asking how your experience it was and you're trying to shoo them off and you don't take them seriously. That is where our accountability lies in making change. You know, when those patient performance measures comes back, it affects, you know, hospitals in their pockets. So we want to make sure that we do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today, Black Doctors Speak, the Black Women's Health Imperative. We're doing a lot of great work. We hope to have you back soon, and we hope we have a lasting partnership where you can keep us abreast of those issues that keep black women healthy. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. As always, it has been a pleasure. To our fans, thank you so much for listening to the Black Doctors Speak podcast. We are a weekly show, and we are sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Black Doctors Speak, and on Twitter, at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay safe.